Welcome to the Small Ball Podcast. Welcome back to the Small Ball Podcast. Welcome back to the Small Ball Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Small Ball Podcast, brought to you by Showcase Sports Media. I'm your host, Matt Gregory, and today, you know, we got a good episode. Or shall I say tonight, because it is 11.50 on Saturday night. You know, I got home tonight. Uh, it was a long travel day. Had a lot of stuff to do. Had to get up and pack early. Say goodbye to some friends, but we're back home. Small Ball Podcast back as usually scheduled. Uh, so, first of all, happy holidays to all of you guys. Thank you all for listening. Um, I can't believe we're a little bit over halfway to a year since we restarted the podcast. So, yeah, once again, thank you all so much for being consistent and tuning in, listening to me talk about baseball every week. I really appreciate it. Um, the one thing I do have to say is next week, uh, we're a little iffy on an upload there because I know my family will be traveling. Um, I'll definitely be able to update you guys via Instagram. Uh, maybe I'll even have an interview that I get earlier in the week I can throw up. Fingers crossed. Uh, but first, let's just hop right into the let's just hop right into the news. So first, we're going to start with a CBS.com interview that they had with Didi Gregorius about playing 162 games this season. Uh, what they want to do, what they think is going to happen. Um, because Didi Gregorius is in the Players Association. So after a delayed start and months of negotiation between the league and the Players Association, a 60-game regular season for the 2020 year was agreed on. For the 2021 campaign, many MLB players are pushing for a full 162-game season. Uh, With the shortened season came less money for the players, as they agreed to get paid for the number of games they played rather than their full salary. And that was insane, because... They were going to give them the prorated salary, and then the owners were trying to cut that too. Uh, so the players, they made a big sacrifice last year, you know. Um, a lot of players didn't really make that much, and you only get paid during season. So it'll be good to see if we can get a full 162 games and just for the players' sake, get the money in their pockets. And the teams, you know, they'll start to generate more money. Uh, 140, I think, is what they're talking about right now. That extra 20 games is not going to be that big of a deal to where you really just shouldn't have them. Because you know what, by then, maybe towards the end of the season, the vaccine's out and we're back in the ballpark. So it's one of those things where the owners, it's kind of selfish on their part, but we'll see what happens. Uh, Delaying the season again and in turn playing less regular season games would mean another year of getting paid less than their full salary. Free agent shortstop Didi Gregorius is one player vocal about wanting to play the full slate of games, saying it is possible to do so. Uh, Didi Gregorius, I believe, is actually... Uh, he had sickness, yeah, chronic kidney disorder, um, so he's at risk, so him coming out and saying that's big news. Um, he gave his reason for why. He said, we showed that last season that we can play through the pandemic, you know? We played all those 60 games that we had to play, and the reason why we got to play those 60 games was people taking care of themselves and each other, you know? So helping each other out, wearing masks, social distancing, so I don't see why it should be shortened again, because we proved that we can do it in 60 games. Well, I'm going to break down that point real quick. I definitely see what Didi Gregorius is saying. Um, They did. They did end up playing all 60 games. But the first two weeks, I feel like half the games weren't played. Uh, Luckily, towards the end of the season, it got better. People took it more seriously. So going into the season, maybe we'll be able to get there. But there was also less travel last season. There was a lot less cross-travel. Five teams were playing... 10 teams all year. You were only playing your region. Uh, Going to 162 games means that you're going to be playing your full schedule again, and that leaves for more room for error. Uh, More travel, more contact with more people. So we're going to see what happens. Um, I'm definitely not going to rule out the idea. Obviously, as a fan of the game, I'd love to see 162 games. And, you know, uh, with the vaccine coming out looking the way it is, 
it's definitely a potential idea. The NHL bought a ton of the vaccine. MLB, hop on board, get the vaccine, let's do it. Uh, yeah, so like it said, Gregorius has a chronic kidney disorder, but is confident he, as well as other players at high risk because of pre-existing conditions, can remain safe with the precautions in place. While Gregorius believes a full season is possible, according to reports, MLB owners want to delay the start of the 2021 season. They would rather have players receive the COVID-19 vaccine before the games begin. If the players got their way, that would likely mean the season would begin around May and consist of somewhere around 140 to 150 games. So I definitely see both sides there. Um, the owners, honestly, it's not a bad idea because it saves the players a lot of struggle. It saves them a lot of worry. I doubt you're going to have to get COVID tested after you get the vaccine. I mean, it wouldn't make sense to because after you have the vaccine, you're immune for six months. So it would save the league a lot of money. It would save the teams a lot of money. So honestly, after reading that article, I'm kind of leaning in the direction of the team, uh, the owners' thoughts there. Um, I definitely don't think they should play like 80 games. I think it should be 130 plus, 140 like they were saying, uh, hopefully. But yeah, that vaccine is going to be really, really helpful. Uh, Next story we have, it's about the Negro Leagues, actually. A hundred years later, the Negro Leagues are finally officially a major league too. Um, And essentially what that means is Negro League stats are going to be counted towards MLB players. Uh, So Satchel Paige, like his numbers are going to get a huge jump. Like it's going to be like, oh my gosh, like look at this guy now. Uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred, you know, big head off to this guy. I give him a really hard time and, you know, he really is doing his best. Uh, Jason brought it up in the last episode. Like, you know, he gets a lot more crap than he should. The guy's really just doing what he can because it's not an easy job, especially in the Obviously, Adam Silver's one of a kind. That guy is running the NBA phenomenally. Uh, David Stern put him in a good place, and he's doing great. But yeah, like man, like what, what I was saying, Manfred, he's not doing half bad. I know we give him a lot of crap. He does a lot of things. He says a lot of dumb stuff. But honestly, decisions like this make my mind kind of change about him. So yeah, uh, he said it was long overdue recognition, and 3,400 players are now going to have official statistics and be in the record books. All of us who love baseball have long known that the Negro Leagues produced many of our game's best players, innovations, and triumphs against the backdrop of injustice, Manfred said in a statement. We are now grateful to count the players of the Negro Leagues where they belong, as major leaguers within the official historical record. Founded during an era of segregation in baseball and society, the Negro Leagues became a popular alternative to MLB during their existence, headlined by stars such as Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, Turkey Stearns, and Satchel Paige, before later giving future MLB legends such as Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, and Hank Aaron their starts in professional baseball. Like If you look at those last three names, those are three of the best players to ever play baseball. Three of the most transcendent talents. Hank Aaron, probably the best on that list. Willie Mays is no joke. Obviously, Jackie Robinson isn't either. But those are just three phenomenal players that came through these leagues, and they just weren't recognized because the whole idea of segregation was still in effect then. In recent decades, historians and researchers assembled a database of statistics from the Negro League era by combining through old box scores and newspapers and archives, and also by developing formulas and calculations to fill in any holes from the often undocumented games. They also separated official Negro League games from dozens of exhibition constants and barnstorming tour Negro Leagues teams would play annually, often against semi-pro opponents or white minor league clubs. For the first time, they provided an accurate statistical history of the Negro Leagues on par with the quality of statistical MLB records. 
It's going to rewrite baseball history pre-1950, said Scott Simkus, one of the researchers who helped build the prominent statistical data burst called Seamheads. The record books are going to be changing. Now, this is just one of those things. It's just a really good feel-good story. I know we've kind of strayed away from the feel-good story of the week um, because we kind of ran out of them. Uh, But this is one of those really feel-good stories. Baseball, you know, it's one of the older sports in America, and it's one of the sports where a lot of people are like, oh, it's slow-paced, like it develops slow, but this is like a big step in the right direction. They're combining the stats. They're like, you know what, we're recognizing you as an official league, which they really didn't have to do. Obviously, it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't a necessary thing to do. So seeing MLB go out and take this step in the right direction is a huge thing. The seven leagues being elevated to Major League status are the Negro National League, the Eastern Color League, the American Negro League, the East-West League, the Negro Southern League, the Negro National League, and the Negro American League. These leagues, um, they they produce some of the best players, you know? They had a lot of athletes, and Major League Baseball was still very torn apart by segregation at that time, so a lot of those players weren't given the fair shot in the Major Leagues that they deserved. You know, you look back and there were a lot of guys around when Jackie Robinson came up who could have done what he did as a better player, but because Jackie Robinson had the calm demeanor, he was there. He was the guy that was called up, and like that's no knock on Jackie. Obviously, he's one of the transcendent players, one of the goats of baseball. There's Jackie Robinson Day for a reason. Um, But yeah, there there were other guys in there, and we're going to get to see those guys, and I'm wondering if we're going to potentially get more Hall of Famers uh, from that time period because those stats are being added in. It's going to be one of the really interesting things to see with this transition. Another thing to note is, like, as a result, the list of MLB all-time leaders in statistics such as batting average, on-base percentage, will likely see a shakeup with the addition of the Negro League players. While Negro League players didn't compile big counting stat totals such as home runs, hits, RBIs because of seasons that were often half the length of MLB clubs, the leaderboards and various statistical averages could be significantly altered. For example, according to Steamheads, the company that was doing the research, there were enough Negro League players with high enough batting averages and plate appearances to push Babe Ruth and Ted Williams out of the top 10. That is absolutely insane. In a a statement, MLB said a review process is underway with its official statistician, the Elias Sports Bureau to determine the full scope of the designation's effect on records and statistics. Historians and other experts will be consulted as a part of that process. It is going to introduce some names that people really hadn't heard of. Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, said earlier this year. For those who are enamored with stats, yeah, you need the stats. But if you have any common sense, you know that these guys in the Negro Leagues could play. What the stats will do is some is to some degree satisfy some. In addition, the National and American Leagues, four other historic professional leagues, many of which operated in the 19th century, were granted Major League status by MLB's Special Baseball Records Committee in 1969. At that time, the Negro Leagues didn't receive consideration, obviously because there were still a little there's still a little strain there. It is MLB's view that the committee's 1969 omission of the Negro Leagues from consideration was clearly an error that demands today's designation. The league said that in a statement Wednesday, noting that the data and context now available on the Negro Leagues exceeds the criteria used in that committee's decision. The perceived deficiencies of the Negro League structure and scheduling were born of MLB's exclusionary practices and denying them Major League status has been a double penalty. 
much like that enacted of the Hall of Fame candidates prior to Satchel Paige's induction in 1971, said Jim Thorne, the official historian of MLB, granting MLB Major League Baseball status to the Negro Leagues a century after their founding is profoundly gratifying. So now, um, I was doing some research and I was like, all right, we're looking at these the Negro League and what this, what's going to happen and how this is going to affect the Major League Hall of Fame. I figured I'd go and I'd do some research on the top 10 Negro League players, and we can go ahead and see like what these guys were about, uh, some Major League comparisons for them, and I feel like it's just going to be really interesting to see. So obviously, number one, Satchel Paige. He played 1927 to 1947. Uh, so I was looking for a comparable Major Leaguer. I don't think there's anybody been quite like Satchel. He was six foot three, skinny, and threw hard. Although his command was probably his greatest asset, he was also he was the also the ultimate self promoter and legend builder. There's a little Roy Halladay in Page's easy motion and release point, plus the exquisite control. A quote from Satchel Page: "I got bloopers, loopers, and droppers. I got a jump ball, a be a ball, a screw ball, a wobbly ball, a whipsy dipsy do, a hurry up ball, a nothing ball, and a bat dodger. My b ball is a b ball because it be right where I want it to be, high and inside. It wiggles like a worm." Some I throw with my knuckles, some with two fingers. My whips, dipsy do is a special fork ball I throw underhand and sidearm that slithers and sinks. I keep my thumb off the ball and use three fingers. The middle finger steps up high like a bent fork. That was Satchel Page talking about his arsenal of pitches. Imagine a guy with just that many outrageous sounding pitches striking you out. You know, and he, he throws hard. He has great location. I would not be excited to step in the batter's box against that. With Page, you have to separate the mythology from the truth, which is difficult to do. Not everyone agrees that Page was the greatest pitcher in Negro League's history. A 1952 poll of longtime Negro League players picked Smokey Joe Williams as the best pitcher. He threw as hard as, if not harder than Page. Bullet Joe Rogan, not Joe Rogan the comedian, Probably had a better curveball, as Bill James pointed out. However, in the new Bill James historical baseball abstract, Page is always the frame of reference, similar to how every major leaguer's fastball was once compared to Walter Johnson's and probably now Nolan Ryan's. Page, of course, is the only Negro League legend who got to play in the major leagues, but his season with the Cleveland Indians shed some light on how good Page would have been in his prime. He joined the Cleveland Indians... Ooh, the Cleveland baseball team, in July of 1948 when he was 42 years old and pitched primarily in relief during his two seasons with Cleveland. Among major league pitchers with at least 150 innings, he ranked fourth in ERA those two years and fifth in strikeouts per nine innings. After not pitching in the majors in 1950, he pitched three more seasons with the hapless St. Louis Browns, making the all-star team in 1952 and 1953 at the ages of 45 and 46. He had a 3.28 ERA in those two years and a strikeout rate that ranked 20th among all pitchers. Not bad for a guy who turned 47 during the 1953 season. He even made a one-game cameo with the Kansas City A's in 1965 when he was 59. It was obviously a publicity stunt, um, but Page threw three scoreless innings. That is insane. To be 59 and come into a Major League Baseball game and throw three scoreless innings, this guy was just something special. If he'd been allowed to pitch in the major leagues when he was at his best, we may have a Satchel Page Award instead of the Cy Young Award. You know, that's honestly true. I feel like from what I've read up about this guy, the things I've heard, he was an absolute baller. And, you know, he had the swagger to back it up. 
it was like Mike Tyson coming back to fight at 54. Satchel Paige went and pitched in a major league game at 59. He was competing against guys in their prime. Mike Tyson didn't fight Mayweather. You know what I mean? He fought somebody who was of his age. Satchel Paige came and pitched against guys in their prime. That is absolutely insane. Three scoreless innings. Fantastic. Number two, Oscar Charleston. He was a center fielder and a first baseman. He played 1915 to 1941. Uh, comparable major leaguer was Willie Mays. Quote, Charlie was a tremendous left-handed hitter who could also bunt, steal 100 bases a year, and cover center field as well as anyone before him or since. He was like Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Tris Speaker all rolled into one. While active, Charleston was compared to Speaker for the way he played a shallow center field and ran everything down. Similar to like a Billy Hamilton, Byron Buxton type. But... He was also compared to Babe Ruth for his power, so not like those two guys. Undoubtedly, like Mays, he was a five-tool player. Sounds like we got a Mike Trout-esque guy here. In James's historical abstract, he presents many quotes praising Charleston's abilities and suggestions that he was equal or greater than Cobb, Speaker, or Ruth. James rated him the fourth greatest player of all time behind Ruth, Honus Wagner, and Mays. That's absolutely insane. This is a guy whose name that I had never heard before today. But notable, referenceable guys are saying he's the fourth greatest baseball player of all time. That's absolutely insane. And it's just one of those things that like, you think about it and it's like, wow. If the league wasn't split up, if segregation wasn't a thing, everything we know would be different. Number three, Josh Gibson. He's a catcher. He played from 1930 to 1946. Uh, comparable major leaguer, better hitting Johnny Bench. Quote, I played with Willie Mays and against Hank Aaron. They were tremendous players, but they were no Josh Gibson. Hall of Famer, Monte Irvin. Gibson was Page's battery mate for a while on the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Gibson's power was legendary and inspired many tall tales. Some of them, probably true. Researchers haven't been able to verify whether he hit a home run completely out of Yankee Stadium in 1930, but they did unearth some contemporary accounts of a 480-foot home run. This is in the dead ball era, not the live ball era now, that Gibson hit when he was just 18. Oh my goodness. Negro Leagues historian John Hallway lists Gibson third all-time against players with at least 2,000 at-bats with a 351 average and second in home runs with 223 to Mule Suttles, who had 237. Although first in home runs at bats by a wide margin, uh, Bill Veek called Gibson the best hitter he ever saw. He was a good defensive catcher with a strong arm. Man, can we sign Josh Gibson to the Cubs, please? Unfortunately, Gibson also had off-field issues. His wife died giving birth to twins in 1930, and that caused Gibson to suffer from health issues as well. Uh, he had mental issues, and then, you know, that turned into health issues after losing his wife, including a brain tumor that put him in a coma, and he also had a drinking problem. Don Newcomb told the story of Gibson hitting a double and pulling up to second base, saying he was looking for potatoes he had planted there the night before. Gibson died of a stroke in 1947 at just 35 years old. Wow. All right, and on to number four, we got John Henry Pop Lloyd. He played from 1907 to 1932. Comparable major leaguer, Hannes Wagner. Quote, baseball historians concur that Lloyd was one of the greatest black players ever, but Babe Ruth. In response to a question 
by announcer Graham McNamee eliminated the color distinction when he stated that Lloyd was his choice as the greatest baseball player of all time. That's kind of crazy. Uh, this guy, he's number four on this list, but he was listed as one of the greatest players of all time. Greater than Babe Ruth, greater than Lou Gehrig, greater than Hank Aaron, greater than, you know who I have at number one, Barry freaking Bonds. I don't care what anybody has to say about it. Lloyd was often referred to as the Black Honus Wagner, a slick fielding shortstop with speed and hitting ability from the left side. Connie Mack said you can't go wrong with either player. Lloyd's early years came before the Negro Leagues organized uh, in 1920 with the creation of the Negro National League. He remained one of the league's biggest stars into his 40s. He earned the name Pop later in his career because he was a mentor and a father figure towards the younger players. That's absolutely insane that this guy is number four on this list, and some people think he might be one of the greatest ever. And he was playing before the league existed, and he was kind of just doing his thing. And when the league came into fruition, he played in his 40s, and he was still just that freaking good. Wow. You know, one of those guys that just grew with age, he aged like a fine wine. Number five, first baseman, Buck Leonard, 1934 to 1948. Comparable major league player, I'm going to go Jeff Bagwell, skills of Lou Gehrig. Hear me out. Quote, I only wish I could have played in the big leagues when I was young enough to show what I could do. When an offer was given to me to join up, I was too old and I knew it. That was from Buck Leonard. Leonard wasn't a big man. 5 foot 11, 185 pounds. So while Negro League fans compared him to Lou Gehrig, physically, he was more like the modern player Jeff Bagwell, like I was saying. And like Bagwell, he was an excellent fielder at first baseman. James compared his swing to a left-handed version of Hank Aaron, a quick, easy stroke that generated a lot of power. I can see it right now. I'm getting Ken Griffey Jr. flashbacks into my head right now. Page was the first, Satchel Page was the first Negro leaguer inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1971, but Leonard was inducted the following year along with Gibson. Leonard was still alive. He died in 1997 and died at age 90. It's kind of sad because you see these guys and they get inducted um, and it's a note that only a couple of them were inducted while they were still alive. And you'll see that more going down this list. Uh, Leonard didn't actually join the Negro Leagues until he was 26 years old. He worked as a mill hand, shoeshine boy, and then for the Atlantic Coast Line Railroad in North Carolina. He may not have quite been uh, quite Gehrig's equal at the plate, but like Gehrig, he was respected and a dignified player. In his Saber bio, Ralph Berger writes, In the Negro National League, first basemen were often the clowns of the team. They would make all kinds of contortions and grimaces, anything that would entertain the fans, but not Buck Leonard. He was strictly a baseball player. There was no need for him to act like a clown. He was a guy that came in and took care of his business. And part of that may have been because he came in a little bit more mature than the rest of the players. But you go and you think about it and you're like, man, what if this guy got the training that players today got, you know? Training from three years old, going to practice every day, playing travel ball during the summer, playing school ball during the school year. Off-season, you're in a hitting program, a pitching program. Absolutely insane to think about how talented this guy could have been because he was already one of the greats. But he was working at a mill, you know? He was a shoe shiner. Good for him. Number six, Turkey Stearns. He was an outfielder that played from 1920 to 1940. Comparable Major League player, Carl Yastrzemski, baby. A quote. Yes, he talked to his bats. You know, maybe I should have compared him to Yasiel Puig. Stearns tended to think of his bats as living things. 
extensions of his own arms, and he would carry the best of them around in violin cases. He carried around different size bats for different situations. After games, back at the hotel, teammates would overhear him thanking his bats for delivering big hits or admonishing them for a pop-up. Think about a grown man walking around in a hotel, not at the ballpark. You know, at the ballpark, it's one thing. It's like, all right, you're just kind of weird. You're kind of superstitious. But this is a guy walking around in the hotel room before or after the game on the bus, talking to the bat saying, like, what? You need to be better. You need to be better, bat, not me. It's your fault. Uh, so this is one quote he said, if I had used you, one teammate recalls him saying to a bigger bat, I would have hit a home run. He was known to threaten a bat that slumped with an axe and thought to sleep with a bat that had been particularly good that day. It goes without saying that he never let anyone else use one of his bats. That's from writer Joe Posnanski. That is absolutely insane. You sit back and think about that, and it's just like interesting, interesting thing. Talking to the bats, threatening the bats. I mean, you know, if it works, it works, I guess. Bill James ranked Stern 25th all-time on his list, squeezed between Frank Robinson and Ricky Henderson, two fantastic players. Recent research indicates that Stern hit the most home runs in Negro League history, not Mules or Josh Gibson. There are also accounts that he had played a great center field, and that only Cool Papa Bell, a guy you may see later on this list, may have been faster. James compared his power to Mel Ott and Willie Stargell. So think about this. You have a guy with Stargell's power who played center field like a G. What is this? Joey Gallo, Cody Bellinger, Mike Trout, and Kevin Kiermaier all mixed into one guy? That's absolutely insane. Wow. Stearns himself once said that Yastrzemski was a guy who reminded him most of himself. That's high praise for Carl Yastrzemski. As Posnanski wrote in this essay, when the Hall of Famer started including in Negro Leaguers in 1971, Stearns believed he'd get the call. Instead, from 1971 to 77, the Hall of Fame elected nine players. Page, Leonard, Gibson, Irvin, Bell, Judy Johnson, Charleston, Lloyd, and Martin Dehigo. And Stearns were passed up. Then, from 1978 to 1995, the league only elected two players, Rube Foster and Ray Dandridge. Stearns died in 1979 and was finally elected to the Hall in 2000. That's what I was talking about, man. Some of these guys were just fantastic. They thought they were going to make it, and they just didn't get in, and it's just, it's just not fair. He never got to see that he was in the Hall of Fame. Number seven, Mule Suttles, first baseman, outfielder from 1923 to 1944. Comparable Major League player, Jim Tomey, except that Suttles hit right-handed. Quote, in Havana's Tropical Park, the center field fence is 60 feet high. Listen to this. This is absolutely insane. And more than 500 feet from the plate, teammate Willie Wells recalled a gargantuan drive that carried over the heads of the soldiers on horseback riding crowd control duty behind the fence, a total of about 600 feet. So you take that 500-foot fence that's 60 feet high, go 100 feet past it. Afterward, a marker was placed at the spot commemorating the prejudice home run. Oh my goodness. How did he hit a ball that far, that high? This guy had to be one of the greatest hitters of all time. Big and powerful, he hit for average as well, and apparently wasn't afraid of striking out. He's credited with a 374 average in exhibitions against white major leaguers like Stearns. He was unfairly passed over for the Hall of Fame in the initial elections and was not voted in until 2006. Honestly, 
if you hit a 600-foot home run, I feel like you might as well just be put in the Hall of Fame. Like, just for that. You hit the ball 600 feet. Okay, Hall of Fame. That's said and done. Number eight, Ray Dandridge, third baseman, played from 1933 to 44. Comparable major league player. There really wasn't one. Uh, Dandridge could hit, had the speed, and was a tremendous third baseman who could play shortstop. Honestly, if I were to pick two, I'd say Ozzie Smith and George Brett without George Brett's pop. A quote, so this is kind of a weird one from Dandridge. Ozzie's the onlyest guy I've seen who's got my style. So I'm thinking what he was going for is the only other, but like the most only other guy with my style I've seen. Interesting choice of words, but all right. Late in his career, Dandridge signed with the New York Giants. The Giants sent him to AAA Minneapolis in 1949. He was 35 years old. At 35 in the minors, he had 362, 397, and 487. The next year, for some reason, still in the minors, hit 311, 355, 405 with 11 home runs and one league MVP. In 1951, he hit 324. The next year, 291. The Giants, who played three converted outfielders at third base during this time, Sid Gordon, Hank Thompson, and Bobby Thompson, they just never called him up. Absolutely insane that a guy is hitting that well and you don't call him up. Man, as a fan today, we see a guy hitting 275 with 10 home runs, and I'm like, please, up, now, come on, we need him. And it's one of the most thought-about guys to come up ever. I guess it was his age, but still, if he could have helped you win a World Series, call him up. Who cares? Number nine. Probably my favorite player on this list, Cool Papa Bell. Center fielder, played from 22 to 46. Compare him, Ichiro Suzuki and Kenny Lofton. Now, I understand that he gets he probably is going to get a lot of Ricky Henderson-esque comparisons, but I'm going Ichiro or Kenny Lofton. A quote from Satchel Page: Once he hit a line drive right past my ear, I turned around and saw the ball hit his butt sliding into second. That's basically Satchel Page just saying that this guy was so fast that he hit the ball hard line drive, and by the time the ball got to second, he had already beat it there. This guy was just that fast. A switch hitter with tremendous speed. You've also heard the one of him getting up to turn off the light and being back in bed before the light went out. Bell certainly would have been a 3,000 hit guy in the majors. The easy comparison would have been Ricky Henderson, like I said, because of the stolen bases. But Bell lacked Henderson's power. He's only listed at six foot one fifty-five, so I think he's more of an Ichiro Kenny Lofton guy. Posnanski once wrote, "My favorite quote about Cool Papa Bell comes from my old friend Buck O'Neill, who was often asked just how fast was Cool Papa Bell, and he would always answer the same way, faster than that." Number ten, Willie Wells, a shortstop, played from nineteen twenty-four to 1948 comparable major leaguers Troy Tulowitzki is the one I kind of got it's kind of there kind of not you'll see quote you should see Willie Wells play shortstop as good as Ozzie Smith and a better hitter that's from Irvin now obviously Tula wasn't better than Ozzie Smith but he was a better hitter Um, nickname was the devil actually he received that moniker in Mexico where he played in the winter apparently from the opposing players who learned quickly to not hit the ball towards him. Thus, El Diablo. His hitting records suggest a guy who hit for average and power. Not a great hitter, but a good enough hitter. Apparently, his only weakness was his throwing arm. At one point, he was a part of the million-dollar infield for the Newark Ingles, including Dandridge, Suttles, and second baseman Dick C.A. Wow. 
that was really fun to go through and talk about these players. Um, let me know if you guys like that insightful stuff. Uh, these are players that I really didn't know much about. Like, obviously, I knew Satchel Page. I recognized a couple of the names on this list. But it was really interesting to go in and dive into who these players were, uh, what the league was doing. And now that these guys are going to be guys we're going to see on lists, potential, some of them uh, who aren't in the Hall of Fame yet might end up making it. Um, but yeah, it was awesome. Really fun to talk about. Really cool to see these new things. Um, thank you all so much for listening and tuning in. I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and a happy holidays. Happy New Year if I'm not back next week. But we'll be talking. We'll be talking over social media. Let me know. Who was your favorite Negro League player we discussed? I'm interested to hear people's thoughts on potentially Babe Ruth and Ted Williams being pumped out of the top 10 for batting average. You know, that's going to be an interesting discussion to have, so let's have it. Feel free to DM Small Ball Podcast, tweet at us, anything. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate you sitting down and taking the time to just listen to this one and learn something new with me today. Let me know if you like this format, uh, learning, informational, or if you're more into just going straight into baseball and news today. Once again, thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate you all so much. I hope you have a great week, and peace. (laughs) 